As the children are leaving for Children's Church, if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and grab them and open to the book of Romans. My hope, my desire this morning is that God will work through this passage we're going to read to really strengthen you and me, to really give peace to anyone in here who is suffering. It is our memorial service, so as I prepared and prayed over what passage and studied the passage and prepared how to communicate it, I did have in mind those who are grieving in mourning, those who have lost loved ones in this previous year, in 2011, and those who've lost loved ones in the other years. I know that there's a lot of loss represented in this room, but I also know that that's not the only suffering that is being experienced by the people in this room. So my hope is that God's word would go forth and powerfully minister to your hearts in ways that you can really feel and experience. So I'm going to pray for that now. I'm going to ask God for that miraculous work to be done, and then we'll stand and we'll read this passage of Scripture. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for these tranquil, quiet moments to be together, to look toward you together, and to hear your voice together. Please work in our hearts. You know the deep down issues of what's going on in our lives and in our hearts. Please pour your scripture in, your power, your Holy Spirit in, and just do wonderful, miraculous, strengthening things. And we trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, yes, we're in the book of Romans. I had started out preparing a sermon from the book of Psalms, and I just never felt comfortable with it as it got closer to today. And before I knew it, I ended up back in Romans. Actually, back to the very last passage that we studied before we took a break from Romans for the holidays. So I think this will serve us well also to bridge that gap because we'll be getting back into the book of Romans next week into a really difficult chapter of scripture, Romans 9. But today we're going to look at Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, a beloved portion of scripture for those who are familiar with it. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, and as you're finding it, What came before this passage was a lengthy discussion of suffering and a Christian's hope in suffering. And as we studied this way back at the uh, heading into the fall of 2011, I remember thinking very clearly and even talking with Meredith about how universal suffering is. Scripture just assumes it. To live is to suffer. It's going to happen. It is happening or It did happen, and it's coming again. It's just part of life on this sin-wrecked earth that we live in. And um, I just, I feel like it's important to revisit that because the Bible does so frequently. So if you are here and you are suffering, know for certain that you're not alone. Even if you don't know about it, I can assure you the people on your pew have their own unique form of suffering going on right now too. So we're in this thing together. But if you would... If you stand just as a simple expression of honor, as we read this passage from the book of Romans, chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. 
What then shall we say to these things? These things being glorious truth he just preached about, about how we are sons and daughters of God through Christ. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're so grateful for God's word, especially a passage like this. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So without doing a recap of Romans 1 through 8, to get the full punch of what he says in verse 31 when he says, what shall we say to these things? Uh, I'm going to just tell you a, a little parable to kind of picture the grace and the love of God that Paul has just laid out for us in the previous chapters. So I want you to envision a wealthy businessman. A wealthy businessman in some other country, some third world country where there's a lot of poverty, probably a long time ago when that country had uh, very primitive laws. Some kind of a country where if you stole or if you got in trouble by committing a crime, you could be beaten and whipped. Uh, that kind of a, a, a land. So picture this wealthy businessman. He owns a factory, we'll say, in this impoverished land. And near his factory are a bunch of slums. And in these slums live a bunch of orphan children. And these orphan children are always causing trouble. And they're always around the factory, vandalizing, breaking things, stealing whatever they can get their hands on, trying to survive, plus just having no supervision. So this man in his factory, in his office, in his nice chair, can see these kids out his window. And he sees one in particular, maybe around 10 years old, dirty, barely clothed, skinny and scrawny, not cared for by anyone. But he sees this boy day in and day out, causing trouble, breaking things, stealing things, vandalizing things, being a pain. So one day out his window, he sees the police come and grab a whole group of these kids and grab this kid, beat him mercilessly, drag him away into the police car, take him to the police station. The wealthy man knows that this kid is going to receive a brutal beating. He's going to be whipped brutally. Since the kid has no money to pay for his crimes, he's just going to be put in prison. Okay, are you still with me? Can you picture this whole scenario? Okay, so the policeman has the whip. He's about to strike. The kid brought this on himself. He committed the crimes. And right before he does, the wealthy man walks in and says, Wait, I want that little boy. 
I want to adopt him. I want him to be my son. And the police say, well, he's committed a crime and he has to pay. So the man takes off his shirt and says, I'll take the whipping. Don't touch the boy. I'll pay. I'll take the punishment. So he moves the boy aside and the little boy watches as this wealthy man is stripped naked and beaten with a whip, taking the punishment the little boy deserved. You still with me? Okay. So he takes, he puts his shirt back on. It's stained with his own blood now. And he grabs, he gets the little boy and he carries him out, takes him to his house, cleans the boy up. Probably the first bath the boy's ever had. Feeds him a good four-course meal. First full stomach the boy's had, and he, he can't even remember how long. Gives him new, fresh clothes that fit him. So for the rest of that boy's life with his new father, Whenever the father has to allow pain into the child's life in the form of discipline, a spanking or a timeout, or in the form of hard life lessons that the father sees fit to let him live through, or in the form of uh, shots and immunizations. Picture the boy at the doctor's office. He's never even been in a doctor's office. He's never seen a needle coming, sticking him. But he looks at his father Do you think he'll ever forget that his father loves him? Do you think he'll ever doubt that this pain that the father is allowing into his life is for his good? No, every time he sees the scars on his dad's back, he will know and be reminded, my father is a wealthy and powerful man. He went to great lengths to make me his own. He took the pain for me that he could. So he must have a reason for allowing this pain into my life. That is the point Paul is making. After all of what he just said earlier, if you'll remember back when we studied it, that God went through great lengths to adopt you as his son and his daughter. That Jesus bore great pain so that you could be God's child. So what shall we say to these things? If this God, if this Father is ours, if he is for us, who, what can be against us? So I want you to have your suffering in mind as we continue through this passage. And I want you to do it in the light of this truth. That God loves you. There can be no dispute. He has proven it in the person of Jesus Christ. He loves you. So in light of that... I just have two simple points. There's two things that suffering cannot do to you because God loves you, because you are his son, his daughter. If you have accepted that adoption through Jesus Christ, if you've given your life to him, there are two things that suffering cannot do. Suffering, number one, cannot separate you from your father's love. Suffering cannot, will not ever separate you from this father. And from the Father's love. We see that in the first several verses. What shall we say then then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, praying for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is no, nothing, none of that can separate us. See, suffering can separate us from the, the lowercase s securities in our life, but it cannot separate us from the capital S security that we have in God. It can separate us from the lowercase g gods of our lives, but it cannot ever separate us from the capital G God of our lives. It can't happen. In fact, suffering, instead of separating us, it just tightens our connection to God the Father. So he has this list, tribulation and distress. What, the, what that means, if you look back at the original language and the connotation that the original readers would have had, is the idea of pressure, increasing pressure. It's the idea of someone whose options are fading away quickly, like a cage or a, an animal backed into a corner, con- being constricted, being hemmed in, frantic. Persecution literally means to be hunted down and brought down like an animal. Famine, hunger, last, lack of sustenance, not being able to eat uh, to make ends meet. Nakedness, basically that's just the idea of exposure and vulnerability. Being yanked out of what you used to have security in. Danger and sword. Basically, the idea is this. We are living in this ongoing cosmic hurricane. And the winds are always blowing. It's been this way since sin entered the world. God created everything and said, it's good. Man sinned and threw everything into chaos. And so we live in this cosmic hurricane where the winds are always blowing. And it will either blow you away or it will blow you tighter, wrapped around God. See, the promise for Christians is these forceful winds, this suffering, this tribulation, it's not going to blow you away. It can't happen. It's going to wrap you tighter around God. That's the promise. So suffering cannot separate us from God. The second thing suffering cannot do, it cannot conquer us. We're more than conquerors. I don't know if you recall when we talked about this before the holidays. We don't just conquer our tribulation and our distress. We're more than that. God actually uses our tribulation and distress to serve us. It's our servant. See, suffering doesn't come into our lives because God can't stop it. It doesn't come into our lives because God isn't motivated enough to stop it. So it must be because God is using it for some good. Isn't that what Paul promised back earlier when he says, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose? So we don't suffer because he can't do anything about it, and we certainly don't suffer because he's not motivated enough. So it must be that he's allowing it for some good. Is he too weak? Or is he not good? Or is he so good and so strong that he's up to things that we just don't understand and we can't understand? You know, as a preacher, you know, I see everyone and I see, you know, who's sleepy, who's not, who got a good night's rest and ate their Wheaties and who didn't. And you want to keep it engaging and you want to keep people with it. And so you try to think of illustrations and interesting things. And I rack my brain to try to think of some parallel that we can 
imagine to help us understand how good and how powerful our God is when it comes to suffering, that he actually makes it work for our good. And there just isn't. There is no parallel for our God. It would be like a doctor who doesn't just heal or cure. He actually transforms things so dramatically that all illness and injury actually works to make you better and stronger. Nothing like that exists except for our God. But that's what he's done. Solomon figured this out. Do you remember Solomon, David's son, wrote a lot of Proverbs, really wise? Yeah, remember? No, yeah. Solomon became king and he was young and God said, what would you ask of from me now that you're king? And he says, I just need wisdom. I'm a kid. I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm doing. I can't lead this people. I need wisdom. And God was so pleased with his answer, he gave Solomon great wisdom and everything else that he could have asked for. Because, you know, I might have asked for great wealth, but Solomon didn't ask for that. So God gave him tremendous wisdom and tremendous wealth. Now Solomon used these two things in the book of Ecclesiastes to just try to figure out life. He pursued every endeavor that there was that might bring joy, that might bring excitement in possessions, in adventure, in entertainment, in good food and drink. And you know what his conclusion was after all this? After doing all the things we wish we could do? He says, it's better to enter the house of mourning than the house of mirth. Mirth is like partying, fun, good times, drinking, eating, laughing together. Solomon's conclusion was, you know, really, I've seen it all. And it's better to enter the house of mourning than the house of mirth. How can that be? This is basically like a house of mourning today because we're remembering loss and pain. It's not pleasant. Well, the fact is, mirth doesn't make men. Mourning makes men. Mirth is like candy. Mourning is like steak. It resets our hearts and our hope in God instead of the temporary things of earth. It is not pleasant. It is not fun. We do not like it. We do not seek it out. But we can rest assured that God means good through it. So because of God's great work for us, this is my final point. Because of God's great work for us, sending Jesus Christ, breaking into humanity, the ridiculous miracle of the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, because of all that, it did not make earthly stress go away, did it? If God's so motivated, so great, why am I so stressed out all the time? God's great work for us didn't make stress, earthly stress go away. It transformed everything so that earthly stress becomes the gateway to eternal peace. It didn't make earthly death go away, did it? It transformed everything so greatly that earthly death became the doorway to eternal life. That's how good and great our God is. That's why he is our refuge in the hard times. Nothing else can be our refuge. But we have a God, we have a Father who is good, who is powerful, who loves us, who we can trust.
I assure you of it. I remind you of it. And so as we light these candles, it's in the memory of beloved and cherished people. Mothers and fathers and wives and husbands and grandmothers and grandfathers and our, our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Faithful men and women of God that we desperately wish we could have back, that we miss. But it also, these candles also symbolize something else. They symbolize, those flames symbolize our living hope in our good and powerful God that's founded in Jesus Christ. That's why we don't mourn like those who have no hope. We mourn like people who do have hope. Even death cannot separate us from him. Even death cannot conquer us. Death brings us closer to him. Death serves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for loving us. Help us to see. Help us to understand. It's so hard down here. It's so hard. But I know that you know that all too well. Lord, thank you for these men and women that we are about to remember together. Thank you for our lives. And Lord, I just I ask that all of us in this room who are suffering now, when suffering comes, Lord, may it wrap us tighter around you. May it not blow us away. Let it not conquer us. Let it serve us. We trust you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.